Conference to Restore Humanity is an invitation for K-12 and college educators to engage in a human-centered system reboot, centering the needs of students and educators toward a praxis of social justice. The traditional conference format doesn't work for everyone. It's costly to attend, environmentally unfriendly, and it doesn't allow everyone to engage or have a voice in the learning community. Our conference is designed around the accessibility and sustainability of virtual learning, while engaging participants in a classroom environment that models the same progressive pedagogy we value with students. Instead of long Zoom presentations with a brief Q&A, keynotes are flipped, and attendees will have the opportunity for extended conversation with our speakers, Dr. Henry Giroux, the founding theorist of critical pedagogy, Dr. Denisha Jones, educator, activist, and co-founder of Black Lives Matter at school, and the Circle Keepers from Harvest Collegiate High School in New York City, a student collective focused on social justice. And instead of back-to-back -back online workshops, we are offering asynchronous learning tracks where you can engage with the content and the community at any time on topics like anti-carceral pedagogy, disrupting linguistic discrimination, designing for neurodivergence, promoting childism in the classroom, and supporting feedback over grades. The Conference to Restore Humanity runs July 25th through the 28th. And as of recording, early bird tickets are still available. It's $150 for four days with discounts available for individuals from historically marginalized communities, as well as group rates. Plus, we'll award certificates for teacher training and continuing education credits. See our website, humanrestorationproject.org for more information and let's restore humanity together. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film, Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Chris McNutt, a digital art and design educator from Columbus, Ohio. He received his BA in history and his master's in adolescent young adult integrated social studies with a supplemental license in IT from Ohio State University. Since 2014, Chris has been a digital design and social studies teacher at Global Impact STEM Academy, where he has served in a number of roles, progressive lead teacher, curriculum developer, experiential learning implementer, gradeless initiator, and esports coach. In the about section of his amazing resume, Chris wrote, I'm obsessed with revolutionizing education to meet the needs of students. Instead of standardized tests and rote learning, why not create equitable, authentic, and relationship-centered experiences where students can flourish? Let students lead their educational pursuits. And if that is not enough, Chris is also the co-founder and executive director of the Human Restoration Project, where he serves as team leader, student voice initiative team leader, podcast and professional development host, and content creator, among other roles. One of the most important thought leaders in education today, Dr. Yong Zhao, told me that he loves the Human Restoration Project because it is a great example of innovations by teachers and students, which shows us 
that we all can do something amazing. Progressive educator Dr. Amber Strong Makayao at the University of Hawaii's College of Education said the following about Chris and his work. The Human Restoration Project is a critical contemporary voice in the worldwide progressive education movement. Their forward-thinking materials, professional development, and podcasts are spot on, empowering educators to take action on some of the most important issues in education today. Oh yes, Chris's favorite song is Something About Us by Daft Punk, and his favorite food is sushi. From the writer David Foster Wallace, Chris's favorite quote is, the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. And now, here's my conversation with Chris McNutt. Chris, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hi there, glad to be here. So Chris, this first part of the conversation is a chance for our listeners to get to know you. So here we go. You shared with me some pretty blunt thoughts about your experiences in our K-12 quote system, a word I'm pretty sure you used intentionally. And you described yourself as at times bored, apathetic, even truant, and you found the arbitrary rules of controlling movement and speech to be extremely authoritarian. And I don't want to dwell on these experiences any more than I want to dwell on my own sucky K-12 education. But I do want to ask you if you recall, Chris, the first time or the first moments when you experienced truly student-driven, self-directed teaching and learning. Like, did did you ever experience this as a student or did it have to wait till you became a teacher? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I still remember when I was in middle school, I think it was in eighth grade, I had an English teacher. Um, his name was Mr. Beekman. Shout outs to him because I'm pretty sure that he was either let go or left the school after the one year he was with <laughs> us. He taught a experiential kind of PBL driven curriculum where we created actually a film, which is quite funny because that's what I'm doing right now in my class is creating a film with students where we write the script and study it and mm -hmm. act on it and videography and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting through that class and I actually didn't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was very confused by it. I remember I thought that we sat around a lot and didn't do very much. I felt like it was very unstructured and I was very much used to the kind of do as I say model. And although it was fun at times, it mostly felt like socialization and I was like getting away with something, not really that I was learning something. Mm. But what's interesting is like, I don't know, five, six, seven years later after I was in college and, and really graduated from college and I became a teacher, that's one of the few things in school I remember. Like I remember days of class, specific lessons we did. I remember specific conversations I had with Mr. Beekman. I remember so much about that class, whereas I couldn't even tell you, like, I'm not even positive I know my ninth grade English teacher's name. Hmm. So it really did have quite a massive impact on me, even though I didn't necessarily understand it at the time. Mm -hmm. And when, when was that moment when, as a teacher, you began to sort of understand that you were, you know, along a journey to liberate your students from authoritarian constructs? Like, what is that story? How did that unfold? Yeah, so 
even though in college and really the interesting, the reason why I became interested in teaching was reading like bell hooks and Paula Freire and talking about critical pedagogy and, and understanding authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. When I first started teaching, I was pretty traditional. I had this kind of sheet that differentiated, quote unquote, different types of lessons where like it would be one day we do a quiz, one way we do it, we do a game and one way we do some kind of activity. And it was pretty monotonous, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We did a quiz every other Friday. We had our units and, and that was that. And I remember my second year teaching, I had walked into one of my friend's classrooms. She taught 10th grade, I believe, biology. Mm. And for whatever reason, they were talking about industrialization and the industrial revolution, mm. which in a traditional history curriculum, that is a month and a half topic. That is a huge yep. one. It's the, the main thing you want to cover for the standardized test. So she was asking basic questions like, when was it? Or <laughs> what was it about? Mm-hmm. And no one knew, like no one, not one person raised their hand. No students even knew the concept of it. And I recognized at that time, I mean, I, I felt terrible because I left that room thinking, why am I doing any of this? This mm. seems absolutely purposeless. I failed as a teacher, but th- like the kids did well on the test. So something must be disconnected here between what I'm doing and the results that I want. And there has to be a reason why I would make my class this boring if it doesn't lead to anything, like what is the purpose of all of this? Mm. So it caused me to really go back and reflect on those books. I reflect specifically on Teaching and Transgress by Bell Hooks mm. and, and consider why am I having my class this way? And I quite literally threw out the curriculum the following day and had students direct their own lessons in government. And it was fascinating. Mm. Um, we didn't cover nearly as many of the standards, but it was, it was awesome. Yeah, that's so interesting. We'll come back to bell hooks a little bit later because I actually want to ask you specifically about teaching to transgress. But there there was this mm. moment for me, Chris, when I was teaching AP US history, which is the worst grind on planet Earth, along with all the other AP mm-hmm. courses as well. Yeah. And I finally got so frustrated with it that I, at the beginning of the year in September, late August, just decided to teach it backwards. So I started at the end of the course with Barack Obama, who had been elected just a year before, and went backwards to the very beginning. And it was a magical experience with the kids. Did they do well on the AP exam? (laughs) Not that great, but they didn't care. (laughs) They were just thrilled to go through the course this way. So I, I really hear you about this. And so you also mentioned that you were, and this is what I was referencing earlier about the, you know, the things that you said about the K-12 system, you mentioned you were, quote, a bit too obsessive of video games. So what I want to ask, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask about this. You, we both listened to an Ezra Klein podcast with the games philosopher C. Nguyen. And Nguyen argues that the wonder of real games presents a wide, wide landscape of possibility. And on the other hand, Mm. the gamification of things like Twitter or grades funnels our values down a pre-established path. We become stuck in a narrow channel or a straitjacket, if you will, unable to really ask questions or reflect. So I wonder, Chris, what you think about all this? Like what's happening in schools with the gamification of learning? What are the bright spots? What are the red flags? And how has your early obsession with games informed your work in the here and now today as an educator? Yeah, that's that's a great question because that's that's a huge part of actually what I, I focus on because it blends a lot of the things that I love. Mm. A book comes to mind right away that, that really informs my view about that exact question of 
connecting behaviorism to gamification, to gaming, to schools. And it's by this guy, Tinan Sylvester, mm-hmm. who wrote this book called Designing Games. And it's a, he made the video game called RimWorld, which is a pretty popular indie game, as in like it's not as popular as most. And that book talks about how you can use game design for good and you can use game design for evil. Mm. If your objective is to hook people in and generate as much income as possible and have this kind of BF Skinner style behaviorist lens, that's when you lead into systems that are like many mobile games or, or games that kind of addict kids, designing social media algorithms so that you almost feel forced to pay attention to them. And the, you know, just the, the dopamine of it mm-hmm. makes you want to hone yourselves in versus a game that you enjoy because it's art and because it's fun and because you want to explore it. You know, some of my favorite video games I've ever played are 20, 30, 40 hours long. Whereas, I mean, you could spend days, weeks, or years of your life on social media because of the way that they're designed. Mm-hmm. So kind of a, a roundabout way of answering your question is, is that there is a lot to be learned from the design of video games when we talk about systems and we talk about how to design classrooms. But we also must recognize that we have to align our goals towards a specific idea. If our idea is, hey, I want students to be engaged and motivated and interested, that's a very different goal than, hey, I want to increase test scores as much as humanly possible. Mm. And the classroom is going to look so much different depending on what the goal of that system is. Mm. So maybe pulling up a little bit further, Chris, and, and wondering, like, you know, there's video games and then there's all kinds of other types of games. And then there's just sort of gamification or the, or just the, the broadest way of looking at what games are, even going back into antiquity, you know, just running along with your sister, knocking a, a ball yeah. forward with a stick, right? So what's happening in your world, in your teaching world, where not, not necessarily video games, but just the idea of play and of games is actually helping kids to be more engaged and maybe finding more joy in learning? Yeah, I, I mean, free play and imagination in general are the cornerstones of learning. And I've always tried to design classrooms and projects that are open-ended enough that students are able to use their own kind of design thinking, their own concepts to design something that's that's incredible. Right now, we're in the midst of doing a project-based learning type unit, I guess you could call it, around utopian and dystopian thinking, mm, where students wow. are designing cities using Lego. But the only stipulations are it needs to use Lego and you have to be able to answer to these. We've designed like simulation cards, Mm. which are like little trading cards you get that like tell you like there's a crime wave or Mm. there's a drought, like various things that a a city could experience. And we kind of tailor them towards how we're seeing they're building the civilization. But like there's kids that are building it underwater. Mm. There's kids that are building it as a boat. There's some that are doing a more traditional just it looks like some kind of, to be honest, like like a Soviet block style, like very brutalist, a uh, bunch of square buildings type deal. And in each one, students are both learning about how can I design something? And they, we, we went and talked to experts and read a bunch of stuff on how to design it properly with the goal of it being as student direct as possible with the end goal being, and hopefully this doesn't come out before they hear this, but the end goal being that they recognize that what they built is actually like a terrible place to live. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, if you try to design something that's perfect, you tend to end up excluding many people or <laughs> living in a place that you would never want to live. Your- 
Right, right. And then, so just one more follow-up question to this. Do you, do you worry sometimes, do you lose sleep, Chris, over, you know, going back and referencing what you said earlier about, you know, ways that Twitter or, or all of the social media platforms really try to draw you in and, and addict you to simplistic types of games. Do you worry that it, that's gotten loose in education and that we might be in danger in some way, shape or form? Yes, <laughs> yes <laughs> definitely. Profoundly. I mean, Teach Like a Champion is the number one selling book in education. It's still widely referenced and, and pretty well known. And that book is all about exactly what you're talking about. It's all about how can I do the most mechanical form of teaching possible and control as much as possible and get results, with results being higher test scores, without caring much about how I'm treating people or how they feel. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to that, that concept of what is our end goal, if all we want to do is increase test scores, we can make a pretty radical militaristic compound where everyone is drilled tests and they will do, I'm sure, fantastic. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day where we see so many issues with boredom and unhappiness and depression and anxiety, all these different things that go into our society, as well as, I mean, various global challenges facing children today, they're going to need more than just test scores to be successful. Yeah. Amen to that, Chris. Amen. Hmm. So continuing on with just getting to know you, in my episode introduction, I read into the record what you cited as your favorite quote, which comes from the author, David Foster Wallace. And that led me down the hmm. rabbit hole, Chris, where I found Wallace's yeah. book titled, This is Water, Some Thoughts Delivered on a Significant Occasion About Living a Compassionate Life. And I finished this short read last night. It's actually a commencement speech that was turned into a book right. and found another quote that has to do with what we worship. So Wallace argues, yeah. there is no atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. We are free to choose what we worship, but everyone worships something, be it JC or Allah or ethical principles or the Four Noble Truths or money or power or what have you. So here's my question. <laughs> do you agree with Wallace? And if yes, what do you worship, Chris? What is, to use Wallace's words, the truth you keep up front daily? Yeah. So the continuation of that dives into the idea of no matter what it is that you worship, unless you worship one of those things, if you worship something like money yeah. or I guess happiness or something like that, it will eventually drive you mad. Like right. the people that want to be beautiful tend to be the see themselves as ugly, mm. et cetera. So perhaps ironically, both David Foster Wallace and myself, for that matter, are atheists. Right. <laughs> so I don't subscribe to that. However, I do believe in the principles of like human nature, community-driven learning, and doing good. Mm. I think there's a lot to be learned from the concept of just helping each other out and doing better. The purpose of that quote to me and the reason why that speech resonates is that it allows us to take a step back and consider that not everyone is in it for ill-gotten gains. Mm. My default setting, the way that I see education can sometimes turn into, oh, they're doing that because they don't understand or they they don't care about kids or they, they have some kind of nefarious principles that I don't agree with. Mm. I think everyone can agree with the kind of banal statement of, I care about kids. 
my goal is to try to convince people that the thing that you're caring about is not necessarily what you're doing. I'm going to try to convince you that we need to change goals slightly so that you can do the thing that it is that you want to be doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I just, it was a short read and now I realize I'm probably going to be carrying it around with me for a little bit like a song book because you go back to it over and over and over again. And it got me thinking, Chris, like, I, I love what you just said. And I was thinking, you know, that I think I'm not sure that I would call it worship at this point, but I, the point of this podcast is kind of a thousand points of light, that there is a belief deep inside of me that out there are amazing educators in every nook and cranny possible in every state, everywhere. And it's just going to take time to kind of make those stories available to people. I don't know that I'll get there. I won't get to that promised land, that a thousand points of light. But I truly believe almost to the level of worship that innovation in education, that the joy of education really comes from the grassroots, from teachers themselves. And I wonder what you think about mm. that here at this point in your, in your career. Yeah, I mean, to me, and it's an organizational goal, we'll probably get to that later, but to me, grassroots is the way that we see change. Mm. I'm always heartened to see that on social media, there are folks constantly sharing the awesome work that they're doing in their classroom. And yeah. as a result, they're networking, connecting with others. And that's something that has never been possible before. Right. We've seen various movements all the way back to like the free schools movement and really before that of educators doing some really fantastic things and switching up the model, but ultimately it's just died out. There's so much pressure to not do things a certain way and to go back to that standardized model yeah. that it can be difficult to stay steadfast and stay with it. And it's my hope that through the advent of social media and just being able to connect with others in a new way that we can grow that grassroots movement and really for change. Yeah, it really is going to take a human to human connection. And we'll get into that right. a little bit later on in the Human Restoration Project, which you are <laughs> co-founder of. So Chris, one more question right. before we go to our first break. I love asking educators about ways that they serve their communities outside of their quote day jobs. So you noted that you have done some work for the Debt Collective, which is at debtcollective.org. And I spent some time at their website, which got me fired up about an issue that frankly kind of pisses me off, which is federal <laughs> student loan debt. And so total federal student loan borrowers as of last month, Chris, it's 43.4 million Americans. And the total outstanding federal student loan debt is 1.6 trillion at this point. So I would love your perspective yeah. on how we reached this astounding statistic, this place, and what we need to do about it. Like, what what do you think about this? Yeah, so that's that's a complicated question, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. First off, I will say, if anyone from Debt Collect is listening, I'm going to do more. I haven't <laughs> done too much just yet, uh, but, I, but I plan on getting a lot more involved now that um, I'll have a little bit more free time here in the summer. Mm -hmm. But in terms of this issue of student debt. I mean, that number you're, that you're, you're referencing, I mean, it's, it's something like 30,000 roughly average dollars per person, per person which is right. a wild amount of money. And I mean, mm. personally, my, uh, I mean, I've, I believe I'm about $65,000 in debt and I've been making payments for what, eight, nine years. Wow. And I owe more than when I started, which is always a good feeling when you check that balance <laughs> account. Yeah. And 
I'm not positive on the reason why this occurred. I can speculate for, for greed reasons, but I can at least argue for the reason why it's important for that to be forgiven or abolished even. Mm. Even though I do believe there's a green power in higher education, I also want to make sure that's clear that I don't think that everyone should have to go to college either. But we should create a world where everyone can go to college without that need for competition. We should want the most learned people in the world because we want to be able to change the world and we need as many learned people as possible. And the amount of financial pressure that this puts on people, especially teachers who generally don't make much money and who should make more, mm. it's just another problem. It's just another nail in the coffin for this profession, especially when other industrialized countries have figured it out. Most of them have close to or free tuitions. Mm -hmm. And I also think about, there's a book called The Inner Level, it's by Kate Pickinson and Richard Wilkinson. And it talks about how much better societies are when they're more equal. It's not advocating for like communism or something, mm -hmm. but it is talking about how countries that have less of a wealth gap in the United States, which is very extreme, tend to be happier, healthier, less stressed, mm -hmm. et cetera, both for the poor, but also for the rich. People in general feel a lot more comfortable knowing that people are taken care of and that we don't have people living in abject poverty, which is at least in part due to student loans, as well as the many other problems that we needed to correct in order to ensure that the wealthiest country on earth takes care of its people. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I guess the reason why, you know, I, I was almost glad to see that you, you know, are going to be planning to do more work with the Debt Collective and it, it, just because it opened a a door or a window for me to think even a little bit more about what this is all about. And I think for me, Chris, part of the reason why this question is so important, why it rises almost to an emotional level is that for several years now, I've really been struggling with my own complicity in us getting to this $1.6 trillion place. When I was in high school, teaching high school, I really encouraged my students to, you know, apply to as many places as possible and, you know, aim high and all of that. And it kills me sometimes to think that I didn't actually understand the bigger picture at that point, the extent mm. to which people were taking yeah. on debt, especially, you know, because my podcast is housed here in Hawaii for Hawaii kids leaving high school. You only have really one alternative, which is to leave. And then you're automatically mm. out of state, right? So that's it's hard. It's a hard, complex question, but we just have to get out of it at some point soon. <laughs> it just seems crazy. Yeah. 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 And we should allow people to pursue that path, right? Yeah. I would hate for there to be a circumstance where someone decides, for example, I'm not going to become a teacher because I'm not going to make that much money and I'm not going to go in thirty dollars to $50,000 in debt to become one. Because from an economic standpoint, it makes zero sense to become a teacher. Yeah. But from a purposeful standpoint, it certainly can. And we shouldn't be driving away people from their purposeful career path solely because of college tuition. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, agreed. That's awesome. So hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Chris McNutt. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Chris McNutt, co-founder of the Human Restoration Project and a digital art and design educator at the Global Impact STEM Academy, which is an early college high school in the great state of Ohio. So Chris, let's talk a bit about your work as an educator at the Global Impact STEM Academy in Ohio. I wanna do a rapid fire round of questions and prompts. Let's have you give (laughs) rapid fire brief responses, okay? Okay. This is the fun stuff of teaching and learning, the things educators might be sparked by. And these are questions or prompts that are all sparked by your projects that you are working on that you shared with me. So here we go. Okay, number one. Comic Con, comics and the theme of injustice. Like, what is that all about? Yeah, that's that's an old school one. That's like five or six years ago. Essentially, students chose a topic they were passionate about, typically themed around social justice. It could be almost anything. We took the students to a Comic-Con to introduce how superheroes have historically fought for different social justice issues mm-hmm. and how they tell those stories. And then students created their own comics and sold them at our annual expo night and raised money for different like charities and things of that nature. It was pretty cool because we got actual comic book writers to get involved. Mm. So, so Chris, this is, the, it happens in every single episode, we reach this point where I just go, dang it, I wish I was back in school 40 years ago. <laughs> I really wish I'd had an opportunity to do something like that because, you know, my dad didn't allow comics in the house, but I discovered my brother had a stash under one of his drawers. And I was, mm. I was amazed by these stories of these superheroes and the issues that they were working on. So anyway, there you go. The moment is there. It's, it happens every time. Okay, number two. <laughs> what do our listeners need to know about a zero waste initiative at Global Impact STEM Academy? Yeah, so that that was based around the idea of connecting with science, specifically. Um, at the time, I was a social studies teacher to talk about how we can rid the issues with environmentalism with our school. Our school at the time didn't have recycling. So that was definitely a big one that many students fought for, but they chose their own idea. They ran with it. Probably the most successful thing that we got were those Brita water filters, Mm. which at the time were kind of a new idea that was up and coming. And Brita offers like some fundraiser you can do where you sell water bottles, like reusable ones, Mm -hmm. and bring those in. And then they'll build you a, uh, a water filter, which is still there. Mm. Kind of cool. Wow, that's awesome. So working with a local historical society around archival work and historical presentations, like, wow, tell us more. This was a multi-year one. I always did this one. There is an archives, maybe uh, less than a mile away from the school. Mm-hmm. So within walking distance, which is awesome. And they gave us free reign. It's it's really cool. It's it's very Indiana Jones-esque, like that scene where they they have the Ark hidden and it yeah. has those giant warehouse type stuff. Uh, and the kids get the gloves on and they go back there and they can find documents all the way back to about like 1820. And they could do whatever they wanted. I didn't really care. I said, choose a topic. Here's a bunch of ideas that might spark some imagination. 
they chose a topic, they dug up a bunch of old stuff, and they spoke to people about it and shared our local town's history. Springfield, Ohio is maybe not in the best shape that it ever has been. It was a Rust Belt city, mm. but it has a fascinating history that dates back about 200 years. And the students are always like thrilled to see like they can find their house records from 100 years ago or whatever. Wow. So I taught history for 17 years, Chris, and you just gave me goosebumps. That's the kind of stuff that really gets me fired up. And I'm imagining that the kids in a way might be seeing the rebuilding, if you will, or the reimagination of Springfield as that process yeah. where you get to know its history. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Student written, directed, budgeted, and performed plays about your community's history. We want to know more. Yeah. So similar concept. So we still use the archives for this one. We put a twist on it because the students were for whatever reason that years, they were very interested in theatrical performances. So mm. this was the first project I think I ever did that was entirely student-led. Mm. I had them develop everything. Uh, they were the directors, they were the script writers, they were the prop builders, the financial people. Mm. I essentially went to administrators and said, hey, I need a budget for this. They gave me a budget, and then I turned everything over to them and said, here are some recommended deadlines, but you can work around them however you see fit. Mm. At the end of it, we ended up with three out of the four periods, their block periods, produced a theatrical performance. One did a movie, and they were all incredible. And they tackled some deep topics. Like one group did an issue around opiates, which mm, not wow. so fun fact. Springfield, Ohio, I believe is the second highest opioid use in the United States. Mm. And they were talking about like what this abuse leads to and why it's a problem and like how basically like prisons don't adequately prepare people for rehabilitation. Some really serious stuff. And I thought it was done beautifully. I loved it. Wow, this is amazing. It's like a fireworks show. All right. <laughs> a student-created video game project featuring veterans' stories. Yeah, this is this is my personal favorite. Mm. So our administrator actually met a guy at a bar <laughs> who <laughs> who operates a nonprofit called Stack Up, mm. which is a veterans group where they meet and play video games, but it also acts as a support community for various mental health and physical assistance mm. for veterans, especially younger veterans. And essentially, because I do have some kind of background in game design, mm. at least some experience in it, I said to the kids, hey, we should make video games. How cool would that be? And obviously, that's an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Everyone's interested in that for the most part. Mm -hmm. And the idea was we worked with these veterans who are all probably in their 30s, maybe, maybe 20s even. The kids chose a veteran to talk to. They interviewed them multiple times throughout the year, sometimes like written, sometimes via Skype, learned their stories, and made games that shared kind of uncomfortable experiences. A lot of people that don't play video games don't know that there are a lot of games that tackle some really serious stuff, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, PTSD, yeah. things that people experience, like raw emotion. And the ability to translate that into an authentic game that mm -hmm. tells a story like that is a is both a challenging but also very meaningful task. Mm. So the students learned about these veterans who are very open, perhaps sometimes too open, about their experiences. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think it was a really powerful moment for these kids. And, and they present, we did like a video game convention for our expo night that year. And mm. people came, we raised money for the Stack Up charity. And we raised a considerable amount of money. It was, it was really, really, really cool. Wow, that's just absolutely awesome. All right, one more, Chris. So... I think you've already sort of referenced this before, but the stack up Lego utopias, what was that about? Yeah. So 
That's the one we're currently working on right now. Fingers crossed it's successful. <laughs> We've always known that kids really wanted to work with Lego, but we weren't really sure the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was browsing YouTube one day and came across, there's this Cities of the Future exhibit that at one point was in Dubai. Mm-hmm. And there's this YouTube video of it, and it's all these white Legos with projections on it in order to simulate like water or skyscrapers. And I saw that, and I'm like, man, that's really cool. I'd love to do something like that. And who doesn't love Lego? And we realized when we were talking about it, it would really eliminate the budget issue if we could just all get the exact same color Lego, because then we have to worry about having all these different pieces. So we talked about it with the kids. And I should note that for all of these projects, we present these projects to the kids usually the year before. So like we'll talk to eighth graders, for example, talking about, hey, this is a project we might do. Mm. And they vote on it. So the kids are really interested in the Lego project. And what they're doing is they're they're building utopian cities. At least that's how it's pitched. Build your utopian city. We present them again, those simulation cards with the idea that slowly we're starting to show that they're building a monstrosity. So it kind of has this meta component to it of seeing if they figure out like the philosophical Mm. nature of it. Some kids have figured it out, but... I'm not sure if we're quite there just yet. Wow. That's so awesome. Okay. So I have a follow-up question to all of this. It's not part of the rapid fire, but I want to talk about Expo Night at Global Impact STEM Academy. Go ahead. I'm going to get close so I can hear you. Okay. So we had a country and then we we made a clock and we used expressions and equations. You use expressions and equations? Yeah, to make numbers instead of having like one, two, three, four, and like all that stuff. All of these equal those numbers. And then we uh, had an export from that country and we put it in the middle. So you have Mexico, the export is? Corn. Corn, maize. So then we had to pick a recipe with that export in it. And so we did tamales. And then we had to make, we had to do the math and do different portion sizes that recipe and then we had a small flag um, and then we had to flip it over and make it reverse and then we had to size it up and then we had to paint it. So that was scale, you scaled the whole thing? Yeah, we scaled the whole thing. So you're telling me that this then, 180 divided by 2 minus 5, x3 minus the square root of 225, that's 12. I feel really smart because I feel like I just knew the answer, but technically, yeah. You actually started these Expo Nights about six years ago, inspired with the work being done at High Tech High. And I know it's hard to describe an Expo Night to a radio audience, but let's give it a shot. Like, (laughs) And I will say, I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about Expo Night on your school's Facebook page, which put serious fuel in my tank. So why did you start Expo Night? And what does one of these nights look and sound and feel like? Yeah, so as you said, we watched... Most likely to succeed, the yeah. documentary about high tech high. And we saw that expo night there. And I was like, man, it doesn't really seem that difficult. I mean, conceptually, the idea is you just invite parents in or whoever and they come in and see the work. And so we started off very small. I think our first expo night only had maybe two projects for the entire school, had maybe 50 parents show up, and that was that. But from there, we decided, hey, we're going to do a fully fledged expo night, which from start to finish is essentially telling all of the students, hey, we're going to display all of your work. We'd love if you were there. And we kind of imply the fact that they should be there, but we don't make it a requirement. Mm -hmm. The students, the day of, rapidly transform the school. Like we put away all the furniture, they decorate, we get like a small decoration budget. And the kids 
absolutely love that, taking control of that space and building something. We make a bunch of signs, we make maps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the weeks building up to it, we also have kids send out invitations typically to like university partners, board partners, whoever. The kids then are in charge of directing people around the building, explaining their projects that they've been working on throughout the semester. And it's a very, it's almost like a living museum type mm. feel yep. where there's a little bit of organized chaos because there's a ton of people there. Pre-COVID, I think our record was 1,200 people, wow. which is very impressive considering that we only have 600 people total in the school. Wow. Um, so yeah. a lot of folks showed up and it was quite crowded in there of just kids being excited to talk about it. Every single time, kids are always super stressed. You always have a few kids who are like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And they'll they'll bear through it because they don't have to be there. Mm. So they'll still stay. And then by the end of it, they're like, man, that was the coolest thing. This person came over and they love what I did. And they were asking me all these questions because I found that some of the things that I am personally most stressed about where I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that project's really that great. Parents and community members are always blown away because I forget like, oh, right. Like most schools don't do Lego projects. Like yeah. this is something new. And I kind of get lost in that. Uh, so it's, it's always an exciting event. Yeah, that's super awesome. So Chris, we're going to shift directions here a little bit and we're going to start to move towards your human restoration project. But first, I think one of the hardest things in education is understanding what people mean when they talk about a progressive education or progressive pedagogy. So I want to tackle this problem yeah. for a minute and and not hopefully lose our listeners. So let me ask you two questions. Here's the first. What is a progressive pedagogy? And I know that's a huge question, but give it a shot. <laughs> I, can, I can give you like the simple version and then like a more extensive version. Okay. So a simple version, like in one sentence, a progressive education is creating a human-centered education that's focused on engagement, motivation, and well-being as opposed to standardized test scores. Hmm. That's kind of the simple version. Now, in order to create that, the more complicated, nuanced thing is we have to shift our thinking and how we design classrooms because they have historically been built in order to improve test scores, especially in the last about 40 or 50 years. Right. So, what that means is, is we have to shift towards more hands-on learning, more purposeful work, more student voice and less authoritarianism, eliminating all of the things that kind of dehumanize schools like grades and homework, various assessment systems, competition even, and reimagine how we can build classrooms so that students have more autonomy in what they choose to do and what they're doing. And some of that's quite radical, like things like multi-age learning, eliminating grades altogether, and also in building inclusive spaces because you can't have a human-centered classroom if everyone's not respected and valued for who they are. Mm. So it's there's a lot that goes into this. So there's a lot of different moving parts. But at the end of the day, it's about shifting away from that standardized model towards something that promotes human flourishing. Okay. So the second part to the question is, I'm going to read a quote from a document you shared with me. Quote, this conversation and education finds itself nested inside other necessary social movements for change, from climate change to Black Lives Matter and police and prison reform, even to the very nature and impact of capitalism itself, unquote. So what do you mean by right. nested, Chris? What happens when you nest progressive pedagogy in these movements and reforms and, and constructs? Right, right. That's that's a great question. So 
I think at the end of the day, the fact of the matter is that if you can build a super progressive class where you are super kind to kids, where you care about them, where you have their back and you're this great teacher with all these fantastic lesson plans, at the end of the day, if I'm just saying, hey, you pass and you fail, that sucks, and we move on, then the system itself is failing a kid. It sucks for the teacher because that's probably is not the end goal that they want. But if our systems outside of the classroom mean that that kid that fails might fail at life, like they might not be able to be successful, they might be poor, they might not be able to escape poverty, they might have to deal with other various you know problems facing their family life. That is not a cohesive system. You can't have a classroom that solves all of these problems alone. We also have to be considering all the other things that are going on because as every teacher in the United States knows, the students that are struggling the most with school are struggling with other things too. Yeah. Whether it be the design of the classroom itself or the plethora of other issues our society has faced that need to be changed. Mm. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so that leads us then to the Human Restoration Project, which is going to be the major focus of your life very shortly. It has been right. a major focus of your life for a while now. <laughs> so not really exactly rapid fire, but I'm going to have you briefly respond to a series of prompts, which I hope will allow our listeners to really understand what you and your partners are doing here. So right. here's the first one. What is the most important thing our listeners need to know about the Human Centered Schools Network? Right. So this is one of our major initiatives. Essentially, this is our both PD model as well as Network for Change via our organization. It uses teacher action research with the goal being that teachers are the ones creating a lot of this content, which is informed by student voice. So we actually come into schools, we do focus groups with students, learn from students, we analyze that. We share it with teachers, and then we help teachers do the things that, that they want to do. So we'll present them with this progressive pedagogy. We'll talk about shifting our goals. We'll present them with all of this research and evidence to back up the things that we're talking about. But at the end of the day, we recognize that teachers are the experts in the room. The goal is to emulate that human-centered classroom feel with educators. So it's more of a workshop format. Mm -hmm. From there, we're taking those folks through this process where they then implement that idea, whether it be, I don't know, shifting to portfolios, establishing student voice committees, tackling some kind of problematic issue at the school. For example, maybe they're starting like a GSA. We take that, they study it within their own classrooms through teacher action research and document how it's changed their students' behaviors. Maybe they're more engaged, maybe they're less bored, and or maybe they even feel more welcomed. And from there, we connect them with other educators that have gone through this process that, that kind of get it, right? They understand what it is that you're talking about, and they can support each other through that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's it in a nutshell. Got it. So in a YouTube video you provided me about the Human-Centered Schools Network, the narrator noted your partnership with the University of Hawaii at Manoa, which is just a few miles from where I live and produce this yeah. podcast. So briefly, what is this partnership and what resources have you provided to your partners there? Right. So I can't remember exactly what the name of this panel was called, but we have done work with that school regarding, we've presented information about progressive pedagogy and systems-based change, as well as presented on a panel with Progressive Education Network and a few other folks on the philosophy mm -hmm. of progressive education. I think the reason why the partnership is valuable and the reason why we're there is that 
our view of progressive education lines up with some of the more nuanced takes on this. What I mean by that is that a lot of times progressive education is viewed as Montessori schools, small private schools where students pay a hefty tuition to participate in, whereas doing all of this work primarily in public schools. Mm -hmm. Got it. So tell us about your human restoration project podcast. Like what is its vision and mission and what would our listeners hear if they tune into your episodes? Yeah, so the mission is to expose folks that are maybe of the more radical lens, that want to think of things differently, that don't want a bunch of banal statements on how great everything is going. I'm personally, and this is no offense to you, I'm not saying your podcast is like this, but a lot of education podcasts tend to be very celebratory. I think part of that is because teachers are burnt out and maybe they they want to have a little bit of positive energy, which is fine. Mm-hmm. However, I also think it's important to take a critical lens to some of the things that we do and be exposed to folks that will share things that we don't typically talk about. For example, we recently had on the podcast someone who spent over a year studying a no-excuses charter school, Mm. schools that are typically located in urban environments to prepare, and I say this kind of sarcastically, prepare students for the real world through a very militaristic style setting. And talking about what we can learn from that, because a lot of practices in traditional schools are actually implemented in that school as well. They, they kind of feed each other different types of ideas. Mm-hmm. So our goal is to expose learners to things that they maybe typically wouldn't think about from a more radical lens. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, I will admit, I get to be pretty celebratory in this podcast, and I am reacting to the world that teachers are in right now, which is just so heavy. But I'm also trying to get the, the complexities of their stories out on the table. And so I'm not saying that defensively, but I definitely hear you about all of the mm-hmm. different ways that these many education podcasts are contributing to a much richer discussion about education than I've ever experienced in my life, right? Right. So that's very cool. Okay, so the Reimagine Education Awards, which are called the Oscars of Education, award innovative approaches that enhance student learning outcomes and employability, offering funding to the winners and so on. So the your Human-Centered Schools Network won a silver medal last year in the Nurturing, Well-Being, and Purpose category. So I know I hate it when sports reporters ask questions like this, but what did that award mean to you? Well, it's legitimizing. Our organization is very small. Full-time, starting in the summer, it's only two of us. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I have essentially built this thing from the ground up in the last three years, and that's a lot of extra labor. Mm-hmm. We essentially have worked two part-time jobs for a very long time, and we do a lot of things. But we did a lot of prep work, years of prep work to launch that network and a lot of research to ensure that what we're doing is something that's different enough that people actually want it, while simultaneously researched and informed enough that it is very much a teacher-powered idea. Mm -hmm. One of my pet peeves surrounding PD, as I'm sure you were aware that you were were a teacher, is how boring and repetitious it is. Mm -hmm. You kind of get presented the exact same thing over and over again. You're sitting in a room with a bunch of other people. You're like, why am I here? I already know this. Or it's just really boring. And it doesn't treat you like you know what you're doing. We wanted to design something that was a framework so that way we're not really telling you what to do. We're just using the best possible research to help you do the things that you're Mm. already doing better. Mm. That's awesome. And so kind of along those lines, the Restoration Project is putting on a at least from my view, when I read through it, a very atypically crafted conference this summer of 2022 (laughs) called the Conference to Restore Humanity. This is a lofty goal. So this is your moment to make a pitch to our listeners. Where do they find out more about this and 
what what would be reasons you'd want to participate? Yes, this is coming up. July 25th to the 28th, it is a reimagined conference, and it's designed with teachers in mind. So essentially, this is a virtual conference. It's relatively cheap. It's $150 early bird if you're listening to this in time. And we've invited some awesome folks. We have Dr. Henry Giroux, who's the founder of Critical Pedagogy, Dr. Denisha Jones of Black Lives Matter at School, Mm -hmm. a group of high school students called the Harvest Collegiate Circle Keepers, who do a lot of transformative work around social justice and all of these amazing courses that you can take to really push your thinking on progressive ideas. The reason why it's different is that we've recognized that virtual conferences can be done different. You don't have to do them mirroring the traditional way of doing things. Mm. And I wanted to ensure that we design something that value teachers' time and recognizing the fact that not everyone has time to just sit there and stare at a Zoom for eight hours a day, which could be a lot. So the, the keynotes are flipped, as in... You watch the keynote beforehand at your own time, uh-huh. and then the hour-long session is all Q&A. So you just have a healthy community conversation with Denisha Jones or Henry Drew or the high school students about what you learned, mm. which in my opinion is always the best part is the Q&A. Yep. And then the courses are all asynchronous, as in they're self-paced. So things will be posted every single day that are resources that you can work with. There's a chat that you can utilize as well as some office hours. And you just work through that however you want to work through it. You can do a couple things a day. You could wait till the end. You could not do it at all and just catch up on it later. Because at least when I go to conferences, the most valuable things I take away are the conversations I have with other people, like in the hallways, yep. the Q&A sessions where I kind of dive a little bit deeper on my own specific circumstance and the packets upon packets of resources I get where I'm like, hey, I can maybe use this one day. The actual time spent listening, sadly, is not always the best part. <laughs> so yeah. we wanted to design a way that you could still utilize that. It's recorded. You still have it. But recognizing that we, we can do something different. Awesome. And what's the URL where people can find out more about it? You could just visit our website. It's humanrestorationproject.org. That's perfect. So Chris, one more before we go to our second break. And I, I saved this one on purpose as the last of these prompts about the restoration project. I spent a lot of time at your website, at the Human Restoration Project website. And one of the pages that I that really stopped me in my tracks was your 100 days of listening. So hmm. why 100 days of listening? It's, it's, it's even hard to ask this question. Like, how do I ask this, you know? <laughs> why 100 days yeah. of listening? And, and if you watch the video, at the site about the 100 days of listening, why start with a question that delves into the meaning of a good life? So this was a partnership between us and another organization called Reenvision Ed with Dr. Aaron Robb, who's an awesome individual who focuses on student voice as well. And the idea behind this project was we need to understand what it is that we're trying to change and what it is that people want out of their education and out of their classroom, starting with students. So the idea was to launch this with the start of a new administration. So we launched this in fall, no matter who it was going to be. The first 100 days of their administration, we're going to help inform nonprofits, schools, teachers, and government officials about, hey, this is what people want from their schools. And we asked questions like, what is a good life? What is a thriving community? These big multifaceted questions so that we can ensure that everyone's on the same page. And as sort of predicted, the students that were involved with this, which more than 50% of the people that were involved were students, said just such powerful, moving things about what they wanted. They talked about how school often was 
maybe not so great that sometimes they felt like they were being picked on or that teachers didn't care about them. Or sometimes they had a great teacher who loved them and cared about them, but they were so stressed about their grades and how they wish that school focused more on who they are as a person and what it is they would be and help them discover those things and explore their different options, which is heartwarming because that's the work that we're doing. It, it aligns perfectly with things that we kind of already know. And it's kind of common sense, but it's it's a really powerful experience to go through that website because it's all audio chunked out. So we went through and analyzed it with a team, which is also comprised primarily of students and young people. Went through that and developed themes and audio excerpts and art that you can look through and highlight and see how students, community members, parents, family members, et cetera, talk about these concepts and, and why it's important. Mm. I think, you know, Chris, there've been so many moments in the episodes that I've produced where it seems like the best reimagining of education starts when you ask the kids what they think about what's going on in their lives and their learning first. There's so much that comes out of that. And so I think that's why this kind of stopped me on my tracks. And I watched that video and it was just like, wow, listen to what these kids are saying. And it must have yeah. it must have been really neat to be able to put that video together. Is that is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, for that video, I didn't really do much. That's all produced by high schoolers, a oh. high school student and a college student. Of course. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just there for the ride. Right. But, but yeah, watching it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Chris McNutt. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. As a What School Could Be podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge, a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Chris McNutt, a digital art and design educator at the Global Impact STEM Academy, which is an early college high school in Ohio. And Chris is the co-founder of the Human Restoration Project. So Chris, I want to return to something that you mentioned earlier in the hour. You listed teaching to transgress, 
by the author Bell Hooks mm. as your favorite education right. book. And I've not read this particular book. I've read Bell Hooks before, but I did read a review of it in the New York Times, which I will quote here. Quote, a genuine pedagogy of liberation, Ms. Hooks suggests, will honor the need of marginalized groups to assert positive identities while rigorously challenging their own myths about themselves and the sources of their oppression, unquote. So why, Chris, right. is this book, Teaching to Transgress, important to you? What parts of it do you carry as you head out each day to teach or work on the Human Restoration Project or just be Chris? Yeah, so that was the book that kind of inspired me to be a teacher originally. That was the book that really moved me. I came across that book and I was like, oh, okay, I'll read this. And it, it was an instant hook. Hmm. And the reason was is that Bell Hooks focuses a lot on community dialogue and, and tearing down structures. I think that she would or be comfortable. Um, sadly, she just passed away, but I think that she would be comfortable be calling, being called a radical activist. Mm -hmm. And she talks about in her work that you need to tear down some of these more assumed parts of our society in order to build a union of theory and practice. So for example, we have to be anti-racist. We have to recognize that the way that we are currently conducting capitalism does not work for everyone. We have to stop being imperialists and assuming that the United States is perfect in every way and we should go to other countries or even subject our own people to various problems and issues. You have to get involved politically and be a little bit more aggressive than just saying, hey, we'll work around the edges and we'll build something that is going to be slightly better. Because at the end of the day, we've been trying to do that for a very long time, and segregation is worse than it ever has been. Uh, so th these issues continue to exist, and a lot of these issues exist because of the presumed curriculum and focus on how schools are built in those systems that exist. It's it's taught by example, right? We We have different systems of rewards, different systems that exist that tell students from certain backgrounds, you're great, you should keep doing what you're doing, this was built for you. And it tells other students like, hey, we don't necessarily want you here. We're not saying that part out loud, but mm -hmm. the way the system is built is creating that. You're silenced through those means. So to me, that book was extremely eye-opening because it pairs something that I'm very passionate about, which is ensuring that you know all people are, are cared for. I think most educators care about that, that they want to build a better society. But you have to be willing to take that step of saying it's it's not just fixing schools. It's a whole societal question that involves some, some really deep, more radical ideas. Mm. So kind of along the same lines, actually, I want to return to something you mentioned earlier, which is the education documentary most likely to succeed, and which is, by the way, the original inspiration for this podcast. But you wrote the following to me, and I'm going to quote you. I am not completely on board with the messaging of most likely to succeed. I believe in the power of PBL and changing dated curriculum standardization. However, the film's message is very much centered on the future of work or the changing economy instead of what, in my opinion, the purpose of education is, which is about elevating all voices, finding one's purpose, and social justice. So I'm wondering if you could go a bit deeper with your critique. And I think it's really connected to what you said about Bell Hooks, which I found very nuanced and important given the film's pretty universal acclaim. Yeah. So I think that Most Likely to Succeed is a fantastic introduction to progressive pedagogy. I think it helps folks understand what a hands-on curriculum looks like. And I think it is very inspirational. However, 
I am concerned that folks that dive into this model tend to be hyper obsessed with the job related benefits of this work. And as a result, you see folks investing in education saying like, we're going to prepare 21st century learners who could take on the tech jobs of the future or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of already had an inkling that something doesn't feel perfect about that. But then I read a book called uh, The End of the Rainbow, which is by Dr. Susan Engel. Mm. She used to be on our board. And that book talks about how happiness, not money, is the goal of school. The goal of school should be to prepare learners for a future where they are content and successful in whatever way they might want to be. Mm. We don't want to just hold up systems that continue to oppress other people. And I've found that in a lot of the dialogue and really the works of Ted Denter Smith and Tony Wagner, there's not a lot of questions about what it means to be successful. It's kind of presumed that being successful means that you have more money. There's not a lot of talk about social justice or about how our values relate to the concept of our existing markets. Mm. Perhaps that's because they themselves are extraordinarily wealthy, <laughs> at least in comparison to most people. But I, I think that it's worth questioning that because I personally don't think that Bell Hooks and Ted Dintersmith would get along very well Hmm. because even though they both have this concept of what education would look like, their end goals differ. And I'm afraid that folks that embrace the messaging of most likely to succeed might forget some of those social justice issues along the way and develop schools that maybe exclude some without them realizing it. I I want to be perfectly clear. These systemic issues are all around us. They are not... I, I don't think that someone's sitting out there going like, oh, I want to make school bad for for these types of people. I'm sure there are some, obviously. Uh, but I don't think that an average teacher thinks that. Instead, I think that the folks that are crafting these systems, that are thinking about these things, that are that are not questioning our historical record and what's going on, aren't making a big enough change that they should. Mm. And, you know, I became aware, Chris, of a story about high-tech high where, you know, the big thing that happens and most likely, and you've already alluded to this with the impact nights or expo nights, right, at, at High Tech High, it's a public exhibition of learning, that it really focuses on sort of the merging together of this social studies work around the rise and fall of civilizations in a mechanically engineered way of demonstrating that. And that results in the big wheel, which is, you know, yeah. kind of the part of the film. And that when I went to see High Tech High, the wheel had been moved from the front lobby to a back room because there were people at High Tech High who had realized or had come to understand that there wasn't really a social justice angle to that wheel. It was just explaining something mechanically and that they had begun to realize that the object of the projects ought to be something that's more lofty, more nuanced, more elevative of the human condition, all that. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, so not specifically about the situation, because I I can't speak to it because I don't know. But I will say that There is a shift in thinking, luckily, towards more concepts of social justice. However, it's still my concern only that that concern can feel relatively tokenistic until you see greater focus on 
concepts like critical pedagogy, concepts like, I guess, more nailed down ideas of like trans rights, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, mm-hmm. where folks are actually doing these things. Like, what are they actually doing to talk about this as opposed to making relatively minor changes instead of questioning the system? Yeah. I think a good way to put this would be that from a conservative perspective, we're talking just straight politics. Conservatives are kind of like in their, their own wheelhouse right now in terms of talking about uh, all these problems. And I, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. However, there is also a critique of liberals, which tend to be the ones that promote public schools, et cetera, mm-hmm. that they, they want to work to prepare people, specifically people in poverty, to better compete in the existing unequal system. As in, they want to create this world where folks are being able to escape poverty because they'll make more money, as opposed to questioning, well, why does poverty exist at all? Mm-hmm. And that puts a lot of weight on teachers' shoulders because it makes them think that they're failing if these kids are not mm-hmm. receiving the education that they, they quote-unquote, need. However, there are mass societal problems that it seems like no one wants to tackle. And it's going to require a grassroots movement for people to actually care about poor people. And mm-hmm. I care about people of color and people that are trans, bisexual, gay, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Here at the at the end of this awesome conversation, I want to give you an opportunity, and we do this from time to time, to do a couple of shout outs. But, and this might seem kind of weird the way I do this, but it's kind of a two-parter. You cited Nick Covington, Bell Hooks, and Alfie Cohn as three major thinkers and doers who have influenced your life. So the two-part question is, first, really want to know who Nick Covington is and what he means in your life. And then the second part is, what ties these three people together and to you, Chris? Like, what's that tapestry that puts you in together with them? Yeah, so Nick has kind of been my partner in crime for the last almost three years now. We do all of these things together. Right? There, there's not really one person in charge, despite like our titles or whatever it might be. We've produced a ton of free resources. We have research. We have PD. We, we've traveled. We've, we, it, we, we've done a lot of stuff. And working an extra two to three hours plus full days on weekends for three years is not a normal person task. <laughs> like, uh, so Nick is a rare breed. Yeah. And as a result, like we, we talk, I mean, a lot. I talk to him almost as much as my wife <laughs> mm. <laughs> in terms of like going throughout the day and talking about what it is that we're going to do. And I think that we play off of each other in many ways, uh, surrounding our strengths and, and how we view education and how we grow from each other. Mm-hmm. And how that kind of ties together is Bell Hooks offers an amazing lens on understanding social justice and understanding critiques of education. As a Black woman, she obviously offers a perspective that Alfie Cohn cannot. And Alfie Cohn brings to the table, I think, a very generalized approachable understanding of what progressive education is. The Schools Our Children Deserve is probably one of the best books written on progressive education. Mm -hmm. There's a critique of that book. I would say that it doesn't talk about race, I don't think at all, which is why Bell Hooks has a step into the picture, and I think that that's an issue. However, if we're just looking at research and understanding what progressive schools are, I do think that's a really good book to potentially get started with. Mm, Wow. That's an awesome way to tie it all together. (laughs) It really is. And I can imagine that I think one of the things that's come through loud and clear in many of these episodes is the extent to which reimagining education becomes a joyful experience when you're doing it with somebody when you're working in partnership with somebody. And it sounds like you and Nick have that kind of partnership. You're two voyagers on the same canoe, sailing it in the same direction. Is that a fair way of looking at it? 
Yeah, and I think it's worth bringing up too for for all of those projects that you mentioned in that that rapid fire section. Mm. All of that is done collaboratively. I don't mm. think I've ever done a project by myself. Mm. It's always been in conjunction with other people who who help feed that and create that. Yeah, that's awesome. Comic Con, the zero waste initiative, the you know the Lego Utopias, the student video games with veteran stories. All of that happens as a result of working with other people, right? And that's the best Correct. part about the whole thing. So Chris, thank you for coming on the show today. I had such a blast and I learned so much preparing for this conversation. Seriously, I went down so many rabbit holes and it was really exciting to do that. So please stay safe and in good health and good luck with your work restoring humanity to education. Thank you, Josh, I appreciate it. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel, Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>